I'm so glad you're joining us for this episode of Street Soldiers on Mainstreaming Marijuana. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. You can find me and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Lisa Evers. And you can catch up on all of our Street Soldiers episodes, both Hot 97 Radio and Fox 5 TV, free of charge on lisaevers.com. And you can also listen to our podcasts on iTunes as well as on SoundCloud. Now, in this episode, we're talking about mainstreaming marijuana. More than half the states in the United States states have passed laws legalizing marijuana in some form, and progress has been made in righting the wrongs of racially discriminatory arrests. But are we as a society ready for what comes next? Full legalization everywhere? Let's find out what our panel has to say. Joining me is Evan Nissen. He's the treasurer of Normal, also a board member. He's the president of Nissan Co., and he's also the co-founder of Whoopi and Maya. Evan, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Philip Hamilton. He's a criminal defense attorney based in Manhattan, has dealt with many of these cases. Phil, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Steve Gormley. He's a CEO of International Canna Brands. He's also a pioneer in the marijuana industries and also marijuana finance markets. Thank you so much for joining us, Thank Steve. you for having me, Lisa. Really appreciate it. Phil, where do we stand in terms of the laws now of, of righting the wrongs of the past? You know, it, I always like to start with this little tidbit, um, particularly here in New York City. Between the years of 2015 to 2018, um, we were dealing with a situation where uh, black men, um, or I should just say black marijuana smokers, were being arrested at eight times the rate of uh, white users, right? Um, with respect to Manhattan specifically, that rate was 15 times uh, the rate for black arrestees as opposed to white users, right? Um, the statistics have shown over the years that marijuana usage um, tends to be quite equal uh, amongst the cultures. Every group, right? Every, every demographic, every racial, racial group. Correct. So we had an issue clearly here in the city um, that, you know, Mayor de Blasio uh, took issue with, um, Cyrus Vance, the uh, uh, district attorney from Manhattan, uh, has taken issue with in terms of trying to right that wrong, if we do accept that premise that everyone is using marijuana at a comparable rate. Um, to that extent, I think that as we try to get away from a lot of the discriminatory policing um, that uh, centered around what we're discussing, uh, I think getting rid of a lot of, a lot of stop, getting a rid of, getting rid of a lot of the stop and frisk um, has aided in that, right? Um, I think that uh, when I spoke about Cyrus Vance, he has taken on an initiative with respect to the Manhattan DA's office to no longer prosecute low-level uh, marijuana offenders, right? Um, he has taken the step of um, declining to prosecute those matters. And that has had a large impact, and I think moving forward will. Um, and we're, and we're going to talk about that and also where we stand now, because people are a little bit confused about in the city about what's legal and what's not legal. But let's let's broaden out here and look coast to coast. Evan, where are we at in terms of full legalization? everywhere. Is that five years off, 20 years off, around the corner? It's hard to say, but I'd say closer to five years, um, particularly because it seems to be one of the most bipartisan issues in Congress right now. And we also now, of course, have the Democratic House, which I think will be very likely to uh, propose it and send it to the Senate for more consideration. Um, Trump, I mean, maybe the only thing I agree with him on is uh, at least his stated view on cannabis policy. Um, so things are increasing much quicker than I ever expected when I got into this um, as a volunteer 10 it's years ago. It's kind of, pay, the pace has really picked up. Steve, what about the momentum in the in the financial world? Because when people first heard about uh, cannabis stocks, people were like, oh no, you're kidding me. But this is a big deal now. It is a big deal. Um, 
it's also a very risky endeavor. You know, when you're driving down the road and you can hear John Boehner, our former Speaker of the House, pitching informational services that come at a cost, you know there's been a seat change. The issue is that it's still a very volatile market. Now, I'm the CEO of a Canadian public company, and Canada legalized federally on October 17th last year. So it's a little less tricky to invest in stocks in that market. The SEC still operates under the pleasure of the federal branch here, and we are still viewing marijuana, as ridiculous as it sounds, um, as, as a Schedule One narcotic. Right, and, and we're, we're going to talk about that. But how have you seen the attitudes change, you know, with, with friends, with people you know in the finance industry? Yes, which absolutely. Which tends to be very conservative? So I would say most of the – if you go back let, – let's, let's go back 36 months or so. Let's go back three or so, four years. The majority of the investment into the cannabis industry came from within the industry itself. It was largely successful entrepreneurs who managed to survive – the black market, thrive in the legal market, and are now looking to legitimize, they began to invest their money to scale. Then you started seeing high net worth individuals, people who had a, a more, uh, a less risk averse investor profile. Well, we would say what we, who are not in the finance industry, money to burn. Money to burn, but not just <laughs> money to burn. But like, it, they it, could have, they, they would Someone who likes house. the excitement or rush. Like right. an early entrepreneur investor yeah. is not your sort of conservative billionaire type. It's somebody who's a little bit of a cowboy, somebody who's a little bit of a gunslinger, who doesn't mind taking risks, and who had- Wants that thrill. Well, I think that there's, I think that there's two types of investors. There's the people that looked at the industry and recognized that this was not unlike where alcohol prohibition was. And they had a view on being like Joe Kennedy, JFK's father, who made his billions when, in the years before prohibition was, was repealed, because he laid his groundwork, both financially and otherwise, and he gained all of his wealth on the cusp of a black market industry going legitimate. Okay, let, let me let me pick up on that point. And I, I want to throw this out to all of you, and guys, please feel free to jump in as, as you wish. The This is one of the things that we've been hearing, and I've been hearing people go, well, you know what, the, the people who are selling weed now, you know, technically illegally, they're, they're, who are selling weed, they're going to be basically put out of business when everything becomes, when the so-called black market becomes a legal be. market. What do, you, what do you think about that? Shouldn't be. I, I would tend to agree. I mean, look, in, in, in this respect, I think that the corporate interests are going to, you know, bogard. Let's, you know, in if we're going to think stereotypically, the guy that's on, um, you know, 241st Street or something along those lines, right? Uh, but I also think that, um, you know, as we move forward, that's going to, um, you know, it, it, it's just a bit unfair. Right. Like as we think about the corporate interest being able to move in in an area wherein for so long, when we talk about the discriminatory policing, um, you have a lot of people who are in jail right now for marijuana. Right. Um, and they weren't these, you know, big money entrepreneurs that we think about. These were people that were just trying to make money. These were people that were just trying to support their families um, and they were demonized. Wherein now that as we start to move forward with uh, a lot of the legalization and things along those lines, 
there is more of a positive outlook, as you were discussing. There is more of a, you know, let's get into this industry. It's, it's a good thing. Um, and, you know, I think that's a bit unfair for a lot of the people that were. That were involved. Evan, what, what about, like, like, what happened in, you know, Colorado or what happened in, in other places? I mean, it's hard to say. I think that. Or it's too soon to tell. Uh, it's, I think it's too soon to say. Um, I think from an ethical standpoint, it's incredibly important to allow people that were doing something that was not unethical then and is not unethical now to continue doing it, especially for money and now that it's regulated. I think that it's vital that they, that the people who are in the black market or were in the black market agree to the regulations and abide by them. But I don't think it would be ethical to block people um, who have minor convictions for marijuana possession or dealing from participating, from participating. in the industry. I, mean, I couldn't agree with Evan more. I, I'm, I'm actually privately in the process of applying for licenses in the state of Michigan and the hurdle to and licenses to do like what are those licenses to, to manufacture to cultivate to sell and to distribute marijuana and in that market the the application process is so prohibitive. I mean, it's more invasive than... You have to have lawyers probably, right? Well, it's more... Oh, a fleet of lawyers and lobbyists and application writers. The barrier to entry is... Well, it's easier to go through the process of trying to adopt a child than it is securing a a marijuana license, right? I want to touch on something um, that I think we need to be aware of as a culture going into the legalization of marijuana. my colleague here said something really profound, and, and the, the war on marijuana has been a failure for the American taxpayer, but make no mistake, it, it has also been one of the most racist and unethical wars on, 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 on a targeted group in the U.S. that we've seen since before the Voting Rights Act. You're the, talking about communities of color. Communities of color. And what we're also seeing and it's happening now. I mean, I, look, I, I'm a big, blonde, blue-eyed, white guy. I'm the poster child for white privilege. <laughs> I, I am. And, and I recognize that while I've worked hard, my life has been made easier because of my color and my gender. You see all of these young men of color, in particular, incarcerated for crimes that kids um, that my children wouldn't even get a slap on the wrist for. In the suburbs or another area. We're no, now seeing I didn't do. in the corporatization of marijuana, you're seeing all people, all people that look like me coming in and becoming CEOs, the power brokers, the real money behind it. And so when we talk about you know, should someone Systemic. be allowed? Systemic. It's, it's you know, let's take a break on Absolutely. this because we have to. We'll, we'll come back to this. I want to talk about the the barriers to entry, and also talk. You know, we're talking about systemic racism. Yes. And uh, and law enforcement, as we've seen in the past, and and also as this industry unfolds. Let's pick up on that when we come back. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We'll be right back. Yo, what up? This is Clarity, and you're listening to Street Soldiers with the one and only Lisa Evers on Hot 97. You dig? Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about mainstreaming marijuana. Are we ready for what comes next? Joining me for this conversation, Evan Nissen. He's the treasurer of Normal, the national organization. He's also president of Nissan Co., and he's also the co-founder 
founder of Whoopi and Maya. We're going to find out what that's all about very soon. Evan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We really appreciate it. Also with us is Philip Hamilton. He's a criminal defense attorney in Manhattan. Phil, great to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Steve Gormley. He's the CEO of International Canna Brands, and he's also a pioneer in the marijuana industries. Let me ask you guys this. We see with, you know, the whole basic retail business model, you got people selling water bottles at stoplights, people selling things on the street, food carts, and then, you know, all the way to people that own restaurant chains and many restaurant chains. So is that same kind of thing going to happen with marijuana, Evan? Yeah, it's already happening to a large degree. Um, it People often think of the cannabis industry as just those licenses that Steve was talking about that allow you to grow and possess and sell the cannabis. But a huge part of the cannabis industry is what we call ancillary, which is not plant touching. Um, almost actually now all of my cannabis businesses are considered ancillary. For instance, a PR firm, a tour company, um, a brand, which, you know, we don't touch the actual cannabis um, license. And the Whoopi and Maya. Do. Tell us about the Whoopi and Maya brand. So we are... It's, it's one of this category of, like, beauty and health products. Right, yeah. So um, I founded it with uh, Whoopi Goldberg and Maya Elizabeth, who uh, is well-known for making edibles. Uh, and Whoopi had the idea of uh, medical marijuana products for menstrual cramps. Um, which I thought was genius, and um, we launched, and it's been working really well. Um, and also, you know, just to get to the sort of the ancillary part, in or, it, the regulations and stuff that, that Steve was talking about that are incredibly higher barriers to entry can be, uh, there, are, there are ways around some of them now um, by working with ancillary, by starting an ancillary company rather than a cannabis company. You don't have to worry about the 280 tax laws. You don't have to worry about a lot of the criminal um, components of it on the federal level. Um, so that's what I think is most interesting. Phil, so what do you, what do you think in terms of, you know, from, from the street view to the sweet view? I mean, you know, from the street view, to pick up on your point, Evan, I know, you know, we've had a lot of talk about legalization here in New York, right? We've had a lot of talk about legalization in New Jersey. When is that coming? Um, you know, right now, as Governor Cuomo has put out his package, you know, one of the areas of his focus in terms of who can kind of overcome some of these cost prohibitive uh, measures, some of these other kind of barriers to business entry, um, is to be able to give back to those who historically were targeted, who historically, you know, were in a large sense punished uh, by an industry that now all of a sudden, as we said, is flourishing, is something positive. Uh, and so in that respect, I know that they are, you know, hoping that as they begin to regulate it, that they will be able to kind of give precedent to a lot of minority business owners um, as they try to enter the field, uh, whether it's on the ancillary market or women whether it's on the direct-to-sale right? market. Uh, correct. Like women, um, you know, any of those people who otherwise uh, have been kind of historically not just like kept out of the entrepreneurial race, but punished and targeted with respect to marijuana laws that you discussed were very draconian. I, I want to augment what Phil and Evan are saying and answer your question a different way. So I likened the marijuana business to alcohol, right? Right. But there's a main distinction, right? You consume alcohol largely one way. You drink it. Marijuana is very different. You can oh. roll a joint. Um, you can buy a pre-roll, you can buy the flour, what we call flour, that's the actual weed itself, uh, in canisters, and depending on the state you're in, there, there are regulations around how that's, how that's uh, packaged, childproof and whatnot. There's edibles. Women are the biggest consumers of edibles. Women are also the uh, most valuable consumer. Uh, I, I, we spend so much money. Yeah, I had part ownership for a brief period in one of the one, one of the highest revenue generating uh, 
dispensaries in Los Angeles, and it was the soccer mom that was our because typical customer. Well, women buy for other people, men don't. Men buy just for themselves. When a woman goes into a retail environment, she has other people in mind. Right, and on so, a list, on a shopping list. Exactly. And so Testimonials, she, too. We get a lot of yeah. testimonials. And so when she mind. gets to the point of sale, her ticket item is larger. Now, women are also highly stigmatized. So I'm older than these two guys. <laughs> and when I was growing up, images of women drinking, they were loose, they were bad mothers. Men who drank on film and in, t in TV shows- Were sophisticated. Were sophisticated. Sex in the city changed that. Right. All of a sudden, Sarah Jessica Parker took control of that, and these beautiful, <laughs> glamorous women right. could go out and be Knocking powerful. Knocking back the drinks like the guys. <laughs> we don't have a Carrie Bradshaw for marijuana yet. And that, I think, is a huge opportunity for, for, for a marketer and a retailer standpoint. But to answer the question, there's so many different delivery mechanisms for marijuana. It opens up so many different business okay, avenues. But, but what about the danger of that? Because the, you're shaking your head on that, Phil? No, it's just funny, like, to, because you're right. To the extent that there's not the Carrie Bradshaw, you know, think about like Jeff Sessions before he made his way out as attorney general. And they were starting to have this conversation large and, largely like on the federal level uh, right. in terms of are we going to get to legalization or not. What did Jeff Sessions say? He said, you know, I don't know any good people who smoke marijuana, right? It's still in a large <laughs> sense. And this well, was they the probably attorney general. Well, would never smoke it around him or But let me, let me <laughs> come back to the point. Yeah. But he liked Klansmen. One of the Klan was okay. But it's someone with a joint, with the, that's a problem. It's just on. because people weren't telling him that they smoked. People that's who know medical marijuana patients are incredibly more likely to support legalization than somebody who doesn't know a medical but, patient. But let's talk, let's talk about, Phil, Phil, can you address the federal, the federal thing? Because it, I, I don't understand this because it can, it's, even, even in the states where it's legal, right. it's still federally prohibited. Is that correct? It, it is. But how is that possible? Well, because we have to... I'm know, just trying to understand. No. Welcome to America, Lisa. Well, <laughs> welcome to America. I mean, just constitutionally, the way that we were set up, we right. have the federal government, we have the states. Um, you know, the states do, uh, without getting thing. fully into constitutional law, but they do reserve their own rights and their own powers to, you know, determine law. However, that's always going to be, um, you know, overrided by federal law, okay? And to that extent, marijuana still is a Schedule One drug, um, which means that at least as far as the Controlled Substances Act is concerned and as far as the FDA is concerned, it has no medicinal value, which is the irony, yeah. uh, clearly. And in a they lot can't of test it. I mean, they can't do, it makes but it do, do big right. tests but on it. Is that right? They're, I mean, they can't. They're changing that a little bit, but that was. That mean, has been meanwhile, the, the federal government has a yeah. massive research center in Tennessee that's funded by the taxpayer, and anytime there's a medical patent that comes down the pike, the government locks it up. So how do you have it both ways? How do you take possession of, call yourself a free market capitalist democracy and take possession right. of patents, medicinal patents on marijuana and then say it has no medicinal value and P.S. I'm going to lock you up, especially and if another you're black. One of these and we're, we're also really exporting prohibition to the entire world. I mean, we force prohibition on the entire world and at right, the same time. We gotta take a short break, and but I wanna I wanna pick up on this when we come back. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host Lisa Evers. We'll be right back. What it do? This Kevin Gates, and right now I'm kicking it with Lisa Evers. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about mainstreaming marijuana. Are we ready for full legalization? Let's find out what our panel has to say. Joining me is Evan Nissen. He's the treasurer of Normal, the national organization. He's also president of Nissan Co. and he's also co-founder of Whoopi and Maya. This Evan. 
great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Philip Hamilton. He's a criminal defense attorney here in Manhattan. Phil, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Steve Gormley. He's a CEO of International Cannabrands. He's also a pioneer in the whole marijuana industries and marijuana markets and marijuana finance worlds internationally. Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Uh, let's talk about the addictive part of this because we're in the middle right now of an opioid addiction in the United States. We have four people a day in New York City dying from opioid overdoses. We have nationally more people die every year from opioid overdoses than terror attacks, gun violence, car accidents, many other forms where, where lives are ended. And there's a concern about marijuana that if it's so readily available, there's no danger of uh, legal repercussions once, once everything is fully legalized, that we will have a lot of addictive people out there. Evan, what do you say to that? I know, I think we'll probably have a lot of different opinions. I think, um, first, cannabis is uh, very readily available right now. It's not regulated at all. Um, it's just as easy for a 18-year-old or 21-year-old or 25-year-old currently to get it. Um, second of all, I'm a big fan of harm reduction. So what I like to say is, I would never say cannabis is harmless, but I would definitely say it's not harmful uh, in the same type of way. Uh, and I would also say, um, based on my personal consumption experience, that if it is physically addicting, it's minor, and I'd compare it um, much more to my desire to go on Facebook than a so, physical so what, what about that? What do you think? I mean, the thing is, like, when we listen to you, Evan, I mean, in terms of what the physiological response is, in terms of its addictiveness, uh, you know, is it mentally addicting, whatever it may be, we kind of have to anecdotally Right. figure that out because as we were discussing you know the studies to be able to kind of hammer this in and figure out what is fact what is fiction what is how you feel as compared to like how the rest of you know the variables feel we don't know because we haven't been able to test it because, because they can't do these 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 tests and, and what about the, 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 that you, you make a very good point and testing is is critical but um you know i'll share i've i've been in, a member of the recovery community and have been sober uh, north of a decade. And I do believe marijuana is addictive. And I do believe that people who suffer from addiction should not choose cannabis products unless they're medically prescribed by a doctor. Likewise, I also believe there's a reams of data that show there is a profound intellectual impact on people under the age of 23 who consume marijuana products. And, and there, was a, there was a study not done here in the United States that's, that said it, it affects your brain chemistry for, for people under But that doesn't mean it should be 21. illegal. Right. Is it a gateway drug? So is, is it your, a gateway drug? That's what your, your cell phone's a gateway. Cigarettes are a gateway. Alcohol is certainly a gateway. Anything that you can do compulsively and addictively Okay, it but you, and, and you say, but and Evan, you say, I, you guys are saying, okay, but it's always, it's, have, it's been, it, marijuana is out there, but it, it's like food. It's a different thing between if you have to order something, have it delivered, or go to the mean store it to be buy illegal. it, I mean, and it's like that, right there, put in front of you well, on the We know the foods that can kill you. We know the rate by which alcohol is involved in a lot of deaths, right? right. Be it from drunk driving, be it from cirrhosis of the river, what ha liver, what have you. We know these things. It doesn't mean that now all of a sudden you have to, you know, make salt illegal. Right. Or that we go back to prohibition with respect to alcohol. Mm. The, the bigger Regu point that we're trying you to need have it regulated. Here, it, exactly. It can be regulated, but it doesn't have to be. Illegal. But and what about, what about the quality? But, but what about the quality and the, and the potency? Alcohol, there'll be like, temp, you know, beer, whatever right. percentage alcohol. Well, well that's part uh, of regulation. Wine, that's part of, right now in California, there was a massive change over the summer. Right. And so when you actually package 
a, a marijuana product and sell it at retail in a dispensary, you are now required to list its THC content. And like having, a, a, you know, requiring what grade of proof a particular bottle of alcohol is, absolutely you should be doing that. I want to make it clear that while I do believe that marijuana um, can be addictive for people who suffer from addiction, most people don't suffer from addiction, I, and and it, I, I'm, and I think that dealing. So with you have a clear not yeah, to be and, not to be and for people who suffer from addiction. About that. Dealing yeah. with it through the criminal system, as opposed to the mental health or right. or recovery system, there's no like it's it just not, a, not the I, way you incarcerate. Let me, let me come back yeah. to the quality I, issue, Evan. What about the quality issue? Like how how will people know with with the edibles what's too much? Or somebody takes the cream, or a woman's that time of the month she takes the cream and is like, whoa. Regulation. I mean, having those labels. You know, in Col Colorado, ten milligrams is one dose. You cannot have an edible more than ten milligrams. They learned that lesson. Other states are adapting it. You have to have imprints on the edibles to make sure that you can't confuse them accidentally with another chocolate bar, things like that. Um, I actually have one question, too, um, for you, Steve, like just about the addiction thing. Uh, I've and thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, I really definitely. appreciate it. <laughs> I'm curious to hear your opinion on cannabis as an exit drug, because I know that there is studies on that, and I know a few people who what actually stopped drinking. What about that? Oh, good point. Good point. Now absolutely. Like what you about that? Absolutely. You have harm reduction. You have methadone for people right. coming, coming off, of off of heroin. You have there's another one that you suboxone. Right. For people coming off alcohol, these... The, uh, right, and with alcohol, you can die from an alcohol withdrawal. Mm -hmm. With Xanax, you can die from a Xanax withdrawal. So having other drugs facilitate the safe withdrawal right. and treatment of an addiction to those specific substances is absolutely humane and critical. Yeah. There's, there's no a lot of question. There's no that. question that that um, people coming off of opiates are better served using. Um, using marijuana products and when you look at the treatment of PTSD now someone may be more inclined to develop a, an addiction to an opiate I think physiologically opiates are much more compelling from an from, from the standpoint of addiction whereas I think there may be a psychological basis although I absolutely had physical withdrawals when I stopped smoking marijuana I, it, it, it I I felt it and saw it throughout my body. People call it jonesing, call it whatever you want. That's not just mental. That is also physical. And I, I think that it doesn't serve our community, the, mar the pro cap marijuana community, by pretending it's not. It's not there. It's just it's another thing. Right. That may have been that, no, that may have you know been the angle. I think at times, like think earlier on uh, when we kind of started these legalization efforts. I remember being in college, um, you know, 2000, 2001. Uh, during those uh, initial Bush years when people were starting to have these conversations about like why is marijuana illegal and we've seen the statistical shift from people who wanted for marijuana to remain illegal back then as to compared to like what it is now. We have a majority of people within the country who are favoring um, the legalization of marijuana. That's huge. Even just Republicans as compared to where even, yeah. even Republicans as compared Especially to where the I was. Well, they're, also, they're, they're reading the polls that show the majority of Americans right. not legalized. But, what, but what shift. about in terms of, of where we're at now with the laws here because people I, I smell I smell weed every pretty much everywhere I go and in New York illegal. City. And, and, it's and, and, and it's important <laughs> to remind people of that, particularly here in New York, in New Jersey. That's what I want you to explain remind that. you, it is illegal. You know, you walk around Chelsea, you walk around Tribeca, you walk around uh, Wall you know, Street, Wall Street, Gramercy. You smell marijuana, and I think people start Everywhere. to believe that it is true. But even sometimes when I go down to the courthouse and people are smoking weed outside of the courthouse, you down on Center Street, 
Um, Actually, I did smell it outside 100 Center Street. You have to remember it is still illegal. You still technically can be arrested for it when you are smoking out in public. And I think that this conversation has, you know. And, and let me just long. make one. Let me just ask you to explain one thing or ver verify it, too, because this is I, I get into a lot of conversations. People ask me about this oftentimes. The possession amount in New York is 20 that, that you're allowed to have for personal use is you're allowed to have a small amount for personal you use for, for for a while um an ounce or less as long as it's not in public view right you see so if it's on you smoking and in public view yeah. well in to the extent that you're smoking in public view you're putting yourself in a position where you can be arrested because for the, the police have told us that the if you're smoking in public yeah, so you can get arrested. You can correct. get arrested. You for can that. still be arrested for that, and Don't, not just a ticket. You can be actually arrested. You can for that. be arrested for that, and then the issue is sometimes even to the extent that the people who get tickets, okay, tell me about that. Okay, even to the extent that you get a pink summons or you get a DAT, a desk appearance ticket, right? right. Um, you know, people you sometimes just throw those away. They throw them away and they don't show up. And now you're walking around with an arrest warrant, right? That is still triggered by, you know, something that people at the time, maybe when they were smoking it, thought was legal. Yeah, but you, not. you can take okay, a fistful so of Xanax Just to be clear, because I think this is really important, because it's like the subway turnstile jumping thing, too, where people don't get arrested unless they, it turns up there was some other crime involved or they, they have an extensive criminal record. But the, you get a ticket. If you don't answer the ticket, then you get a warrant. Correct. Right? Correct. And then now you're going into the system instead of because you didn't pay the fine or show up for court. Right. And oftentimes, um, you know, people will then show up to court after the warrant, get the fine, don't pay that. Now you have another warrant. Right. right? So or it's, you get it's arrested. Systemic. It gets you caught or up you in get the arrested system. on a Friday and you're there until Monday. So right. Exactly. Evan taught me something years ago that I didn't realize. You'll notice like there's this huge proliferation of business friendly states west of the Mississippi, Colorado, California. Oregon, Washington, that have marijuana-friendly laws. The reason for that, as Evan taught me, those states joined the union later in the 19th century. Their state constitutions allow the public to dictate law. So you and I could start a petition, Lisa. We could go to Phil in the business community, have him write the law. Evan could then organize the electorate, and the people could say, this is how I want marijuana taxed and regulated in my state. Now. That's not true for states that don't allow for voter referendums. And New York, there was a big push <laughs> in New York to change the state constitution to allow for voter referendums. And that, that was pushed, we, we both know who was pushing that. And that was pushed by someone who is a lobbyist and high net worth guy, hoping that if the state constitution changed, then public opinion would rule the day. The problem we've got is that the structure of how laws are made in many states does not follow what the public wants. What do you, wait, real quick word on that, Evan, what about uh, That's that? completely true. I mean, not only has, I mean, I've, I said this earlier too, but not only has the federal government ignored, in many states, ignored the will of the voters, we at the same time, like the, the United States population does not want prohibition. The United States government is still exporting it globally. You know who did always want prohibition, though? The tobacco industry, right? right? And Absolutely. that's when you start to get into a lot of the conspiracy theories behind, is this more of a health decision or was this more of a keeping competition? Uh, more of a money of decision. Decisions. On that note, let's take a break because I want to talk more uh, talk about the money as well. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We'll be right back.
What up? This is Trey Songz and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, real people, only on Hot 97. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about mainstreaming marijuana. With me today, Evan Nissen. He's the treasurer of Normal. He's also the president of Nissan Co. He's also the co-founder of Whoopi and Maya. Evan, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Philip Hamilton. He's a criminal defense attorney based in Manhattan. Phil, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also with us is Steve Gormley. He's the CEO of International Canna Brands and a pioneer in the mar in marijuana industries and markets and finance. Thank you so much for being with us, Thanks Steve. for having me, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Um, Evan, give us a picture, kind of like a, a, a big picture of the types of businesses that are out there. I mean, we've seen Snoop Dogg with his businesses. We've seen Wiz Khalifa, other hip-hop artists. Some of the uh, female country music stars have gotten involved in it. All, what kinds of things are happening? Well, like Steve was saying, you know, during the break, there is this is the sort of golden era for brands right now. Um, brands are the one thing that we're for sure, or I am sure, will outlive any regulation change or any law change uh, or anything like that. Um, and everybody is sort of racing to get their niche and their target demographic. Uh, and that could range, you know, on the product side, like Steve was saying before, you know, edibles, topicals, pre-rolls, vape pens. And then you can get within that, you know, I mean, obviously edibles can go into anything. Um, and then even within that, you're talking different strains, sativa, indica, whatever. And then businesses, you're talking about ancillary marketing companies, PR firms, law firms. Um, Technology companies. Everyone. You, know, you have to grow it, right? The lights that you need in Software. your hydroponic shop. There's there's so many different we toured what, we business toured what, accountants. A facility in, in New Jersey where they're making actual herbs for cooking, but ready to turn yeah. over. It's like a $3 million exactly. yep. wow. hydroponic. I know I've referred to the pre-prohibition before in, in this interview. And like when you think of like absolute Hennessy, Coors, Heineken, all of these different alcohol brands that are household names. Right. In the years leading up to the repeal of prohibition and the years afterward, you didn't see that. Right now, no marijuana brand controls more than 4% of its state market. What that means is that there's this tremendous opportunity in brands. Because there's no one dominating. My company, International Canna Brands, is rolling up. We're going after middle market brands. We don't want to bag elephants. We want profitable businesses run by young, hungry entrepreneurs. Uh, we're, it's imagine like a rolling up a regional like InBev rolling up regional beers, right? Craft beers that do really well in their local markets. That's what we're doing, except focused on marijuana brands and doing it that way. Phil, so what about the, the the branding thing we've seen with illegal drugs? I mean, I've seen heroin uh, heroin Push. packets and fentanyl yeah. packets <laughs> stamped with the brands. Right. But what about what about the level the effect on on street dealers or people who are you know, dealing dealing on that level. Great question, Lisa. I, I think at the end of the day, what's going to happen with respect to all the legalization is that it's going to just depress the market. I don't think the street dealers are going away, right? So when you talk about what are the street brands that you typically hear or that I used to see with clients when I was at the Bronx Defenders, the Kush, uh, you know, the Reg, the Perp, the, you know, whatever it may be, um, you know, they will still be around. I think that what's going to happen, though, is that their price point is just going to take a hit depending upon regulation and taxes of the legal market, right? So depending on, say, for an instance, with respect to the legal market, uh, you tax an ounce at $50 an ounce, no matter what the price of the ounce may be, right? right. Um, you know, to that extent, 
when you're, you know, maybe like a college kid or, you know, somebody that's like strapped on cash that otherwise wants to smoke your marijuana, if you can't afford it at these, you know, legalized businesses, the street guy will be able to come in and figure out what that price point will be to stay competitive even within the legal market. So I don't think that they're going away. And that, unfortunately, I think will still be where some of, and I think as an industry um, leader, it will be important to make sure that those street dealers um, are not continuing to be criminalized simply for the fact that when marijuana becomes legal, they're taking money out of corporate interest pockets, right? Because then yeah, where are look we at, really look going? Look at with cigarettes. You can't sell bootleg cigarettes. Look, we know what happens. We, everybody goes to the bodega, right? They do the Lucy. You they do the Lucy. He just opened up a whole other conversation, right? I mean, the, 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 the fact of the matter is... What about? Let me ask you this, though, first, Steve. What do you think? There'll, there'll still be those those Ill, those those illegal dealers, bootleggers for the twenty first century. And are we talking? <laughs> are we talking federal prohibition? Because, for instance, right now in Washington State and Oregon, where cannabis is really cheap, you're seeing a black market, but they're just exporting it out here because it's not legal yet. Well, eighty so, percent of what's grown in California ends up across the border illegally. You know, when you look at markets like which border? But, the state border, the state but border. But if it was okay. federally legal and the same and, and they wouldn't have that higher markup buying it there, selling it here. And when we were talking earlier about where the federal government still comes in, even within a lot of these states where, you know, marijuana is legal otherwise, it, it generally, the crux of it is that. They're worried about the interstate commerce. They're worried about what the are, what are, what are, So, so what are, let me ask you about that. What about that? So somebody goes to, Cal uh, to Colorado on a trip, they buy edibles there, a bunch of edibles, bring them back to New York. Are, are they technically committing a crime? I mean, technically, yes, right? Because that weed is crossing federal lines. Crossing state lines. Right, and then yeah. at that point, that's when you're talking about federal that, jurisdiction. So, so let me ask the, you this. GSA policy Crazy is doomsday scenario, but could the federal government actually shut down some of these if they dispensaries did. and places in states? They, and can, raid, they can raid yeah. them right now. And they, like do, right right, and they do all the time. But, I mean, right. it's but really, here's the yeah. thing. In if, states where it's legal. If they, yes. yes. Here's the thing, though. They cannot for states to make marijuana legal if they effectively somehow if we lived in a parallel universe could actually get rid of the dispensaries the states would still have legal marijuana you could still home grow you could still possess and you could still give it away so then you're talking about a situation like dc that's completely unregulated but marijuana is still legal and i don't think the federal government wants that either and i think that's probably the reason sessions didn't actually enforce it because they can't they can diminish it to some extent, but they're just going to push it into the black market. So, so Steve, for but them. The, the other thing that we got to keep in mind, this is an agricultural product, right? Right. It's, and it, it is the highest margin. What, you're saying like corn or beans? Yes, or? But, the, but your margin is better than really any other <laughs> agri corn, agricultural <laughs> product on right. the market. And there's parts of the country where yeah. it's So supply and demand and harvest will always impact. The regulations are one set of realities, but the fact that it is... It's an agricultural product. I mean, the wildfires. Whether it ends up in, California. whether it ends up in uh, an edible as oil, or it ends up in a vape pen, or it ends up in a joint, it, it is. It's an agricultural product, and so all of the same metrics that affect pricing in the agricultural industry will right. will affect marijuana. Certainly, you can have, you can lose a whole crop because of pest infestation. One of the biggest issues growing marijuana. Even indoors is mold and spider mites. It's, right. it's pest infestation. So, and the only way to address that is technology. Um, and that's a whole different thing. But, but what about in terms of the quality control, Evan? Are we going to see a day, do you think, where the FDA, yeah. the way they regulate Definitely. health and beauty products and 
Yeah. We're it's going to be see, very uh, slow, we, though. Gonna, we're going to see organic, the organic label and all that? Uh, I'm not sure about the organic label, but if you go up to Canada right now, where it's fairly legal, Health Canada, which is their FDA, regulates it. And it is much different touring a grow in Canada than touring a grow even in a well-regulated state like Colorado and oh, California where it's going. Um, the FDA will do that. What do you mean touring a grow? Like um, a look- like a cultivation facility. Right. Um, like in Canada, when I do that, you know, you have to be completely covered up. You need to wear oh, yeah. gloves and you need to put on pure, Like a sterile pearl. environment. Yes. Completely sterile. I mean, it's wow. a pharmaceutical Like in an operating room or something. Because you can bring in yeah. some sort of microscopic pest that could it kill a whole crop. And then they do serious testing. They do metal testing, things like yeah. that. Um, even in Colorado and California, where they have well-regulated state systems, um, they're still not that stringent yet. But so, it's still in the back of their mind, though, even those it's growers in Colorado and yeah. in, in California, they still, in the back of their mind, have to be worried about the feds coming through right. at any point. So, now, again, Jeff Sessions yeah. isn't there, but to the extent you get somebody else in that has the moral opposition to the crop that a- he has. As a business person, though, I, I'm conflicted because as an activist, I want prohibition immediately. As a business person, I recognize... You mean you want prohibition to end it. immediately? End immediately. <laughs> okay. I want prohibition to end immediately okay. as an activist. Okay. As a business person, there is so much money to be made in the space that we're in right now. Because of the in this limbo. Because we're willing to take limbo. The There's so much money to be made. Because the big money. So you're saying if, if, the, if, the, if the, it's legalized federally on the federal level. Then the banks come rushing. Yeah. Even if you then reschedule the, big, no the risk. That is a good point. Because it, think about it. The even banks if you are reschedule always concerned, the drug. you know, from a legal in terms of having the money insured or what have you, it, they can't be loaning money out on what's still in many federally is illegal well, in right. many states. Is but right, yeah, exactly. it, it, one they, of the biggest challenges you have operating a business in the U.S. is is banking. Firstly, you're not using there is no massive credit card proliferation. This is still one of the few products. It's like going to a bar or a dry cleaner. Well, even in a bar or a dry cleaner, you're using your credit card. You're paying cash here. So imagine that. Imagine the banking Wait, you have complexity. To pay cash at all these places. No. A lot of marijuana We're businesses Democrat. pay their bills in cash. And you see a lot they of the marijuana investors in with cash. The, with the security guards really? with yeah. guns because oh, yeah. they're so worried. They're worried about being robbed. There, you find me a U.S. bank that will take deposits from a marijuana business, and I will take you to Nobu every night of the week. It's it is impossible, right? You have to actually find these small state banks that, or. Actually, in the U.S., the credit unions have stepped in. Um, it, but once the drug is, if the drug is rescheduled, that changes That's everything. That's because it's still a Schedule One drug. Yes, the no banks, banks don't want anything. The federal no government wants banking. Yeah, the, and the banks won't do it. And here's the other thing that that that. that so we're like in this crazy legal. Well, this is the other thing. Like the why the Republican Party, especially its libertarian branch, isn't just outraged over this? Wall Street has ceded its capability to step in as an investment community and get behind the marijuana business and it's ceded it to Bay Street in Toronto in Canada. Right now, all of the major players on the banking level spending billions of dollars. That's why you're involved in all, Canada. I'm Everyone. an American. I have to go across the border to make to my make living. To make that kind of money. To make that kind of money. To actually invest with 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 reputable institutions that do their homework and can actually deploy capital into marijuana businesses, I have to go to Canada. There is nobody on Wall Street doing that. And now Canada will have such a leg up for, on us for, for decades. They're going to have the business. Oh. They've have already the done market generations of, of deals. They have the whole yeah. They, they have know the how to vet it. They, they, know, the they know where the deals are. We're just forfeiting that. It's a whole industry that... that, 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 that we're kind of economy. It's a whole economy. Mm-hmm. 
What, what, Phil, what about advice for somebody who is wants to get into the business in New York City, or maybe they're already in it illegally and they're trying to figure out how to switch it through? Like, how, how far? How, go west. How I, far mean, go west. I, I would start there. Go to the Wild West because, again, yeah. I remind New everyone it's, it's still illegal here. We'll, we'll see what happens. I think, um, you know, if all things go well, you know, we're looking at maybe legalization around April of 2020. Right. Um, and to the extent as the regulations kind of come out and, and we understand what it's going to entail from a cost perspective to get in, I think that will be when better to have the conversation with, you know, how does the guy that was, you know, selling weed on the corner kind of get into a position where what and I never thought that he was doing anything wrong. Whenever the question comes, you know, how do you defend, you know, people that, right. that sell drugs or get Personally, morally, I never felt that, you know, selling marijuana, using marijuana was, was something that community. was it wasn't hurting the community and it wasn't wrong. The laws so against of, it are it, correct. So in terms of like that person making the transition into the business world, we're just going to have to see like what the regulations become. But it's going to open up, as you mentioned, um, and I have good friends that are doing this, former prosecutor. Uh, right now, I know uh, at, a, at a local firm that's doing a lot of the, you know, grunt early work on, you know, trying to figure out how we're going to place those kinds of uh, individuals in the positions where legally they can come out on the other side and not have to operate in the shadows anymore. Lisa, I, I would be remiss if I didn't warn your viewers and listeners Very that, quickly. That, that, that you know everybody is all caught up in the hype of becoming a marijuana millionaire. Right. You can lose your shirt. You have to do your homework. It's tricky. It's complex. It's still federally Some illegal. Lot landmines everywhere too. You and you you've got to vet everywhere you walk yeah. in this process. It's, it's a risk. It's a risk. It's a high risk for everybody. So everybody's warned. Real quick, Evan. Last question: the the would you support full uh, full studies, medical studies, and yeah. health studies yeah, about marijuana, its effects, and of course. I mean, I think that is vital. I think uh, there. I mean, until the seventies, you know anecdotal evidence was enough if you had a lot. So right. I think we do have a lot of evidence, even though it's anecdotal But we at need the something moment. where it's like a controlled scientific Yeah, thing. we need a lot of I mean, there should be absolutely no limits on cannabis to people over 21, whether you're researching it or consuming it for recreational purposes. And you think 21 be the age, not 18? Um, I think that personally it should be decriminalized for people at least between 19 and 21 because I don't think that should... Um, you should be at risk of hurting your career or right. Uh, your future. Right, exactly. Um, well, hold on, when you say decriminalize, you mean, of, of course, decriminalize, but, you know, it, it should be just in general, but I, I think more where you're going is just you don't want 17-year-olds, 16-year-olds right. using it. Correct. Right. Right. Well, right. I, I also... got to make that I, clear. No, but we're, I also, not talking, we're talking about adult legalization. Right, adult, but I also right. don't want use. high schoolers arrested anymore. Yeah, I don't, want, I don't yeah. want anyone arrested. Nobody wants, I don't want yeah. high schoolers to be right. able to go we buy cannabis. We don't want anyone to get arrested, and we don't want anyone to commit any crime. We want everyone to be... Happy. Yes. Anyway, um, I want. I'm happy. Thank you guys for being with thank us for you. this episode of Street Soldiers. Evan Nissen, thank you so much. Thank you, Phil Hamilton. Great to have you. Thank you, Steve Gormley. Great to have you on the thank show. You, thank Lisa. you so Thanks much. Thanks for having us. And thank you for joining me for this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm Lisa Evers. Remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. Let's push for peace. <laughs>